Jesus shows himself by revealing to us and stating to us what we can simply catalyze as a promise. He says something that's true, that is a statement that's not general. He doesn't just say, two plus two equals four. And we go, oh. It's always a, a statement that's a promise toward us, and therefore it implicitly demands a response from us. Either we go, oh great, or no thanks. So he makes a promise. There's an implicit response built into the nature of what God says, so that there's a dynamic too. So there's the person and the promise, but there's also a dynamic. That is, whether we will believe or rebel. And the, the good news is, is that when God's promise comes together with a willingness to believe and trust him, it produces salvation, deliverance, life. Everything that we should hope for and freedom from everything we should fear. Now, one of the things to recognize about this is that um, most of the church, most of people who would self-identify as Christians do not understand the gospel. They are doing something that they might, they might call Christianity, they might refer to as the Christian religion, but they don't believe the gospel. And because they don't believe the gospel, they keep doing Christianity and they keep finding out that it doesn't work. It's kind of like the old Farsar cartoon with the kid trying to get into the school for the gifted and talented who's pushing on the door that says pull and looking down at the ground. Christian faith in which you think you're doing Christianity, but you're not actually believing the gospel will always be experienced just like that. Why am I not getting anywhere? I'm totally doing this Christianity thing. I'm trying. I'm doing it. Why isn't God helping me? It says pull right there. And if somebody does that for long enough, they just keep performing, and they keep performing, and they keep trying hard, and they keep trying to, you know, do believe whatever they think they, and like going to the church and trying to be nice and blah, blah. Will they do that forever? They won't, right? They'll do that for a while. Some of us will do it longer than others, but after a while, you'll say, right, it's blank this. Punctuation. Forget this. Expletive this Exclamation point I'm not doing this And so they go from this to You can't even get into that building It's crazy Right And that's, that's what happens with people When they don't understand the gospel That's how people get so emotionally trapped Either in religion or irreligion That is why so many people think that Like mm, please I've tried that religion thing Yeah well you, you didn't actually you, you did, you tried religion, you never believed the gospel. Or you didn't realize that your heart was so programmed for religion or irreligion that you believed the gospel for a minute and then you promptly forgot it and started living back in religion or irreligion and you didn't realize you did that and so you thought you were believing the gospel and you found it like this. And at some point your arm gets tired and you get sick of watching the ants run under you. And so you go the other way, and you just do whatever you want, whatever you think will make you happy. What I want to do this morning is I want to encapsulate the message of the whole Old Testament from a New Testament passage. I had a New Testament professor in seminary who was quoting an Old Testament professor that he had in seminary who had said, I think it was Gleason Archer, he said something like this. He said, listen, I love the whole Bible, it's all God's Word, but if I could only have one testament, I would pick the New Testament. And if of the whole New Testament, I could only have one book of the New Testament, I would pick the book of Romans. And he said, if I could only have one chapter in the whole book of Romans, I would choose chapter 3. 
And if I could only have one paragraph in the chapter 3 of Romans, I would pick verses 21 to 25 about the justification that we can receive from God that is by faith. But if I could only have one word in that paragraph, I would choose the word translated sacrifice of atonement. Because in that one word, the message of the whole Bible is encapsulated. That God made a promise that he would provide a righteousness for us. The sacrifice of atonement that was Jesus. That if we put our trust in him, which is what you have to do in a sacrifice of atonement, we could be made right with God. That is, the promise and the dynamic are built into that word. If I could only have one word, I'd pick that word. But let's look at that paragraph. Let's not get quite as pedantic as that, right? This is what it says, and this is on page, I think, 1750, if you want to look it up in a pew Bible. But now, a righteousness from God has been made known, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, what I want you to see there is I want you to see that the promise and the dynamic are repeated twice. Right? A righteousness from God. Now you may be like, what? I don't even know what that is. That means, all that means is an absolute right standing. Imagine a relationship that you've got or you've had that was like totally blown apart and you don't even have any idea how you would even talk to that person. Right? And then that person came back to you and said, listen, I know we've been fighting, but listen, I'm just going to put all of that aside. Let's put all of that aside and let's have a relationship again. Right? That's what it—it's on a relational level— not a moral level, but on a relational level, that's what it means to be justified. All the stuff that would morally and personally is just, it's put aside, and you have a standing by which you can interact again. Of course, it also contains in Christian faith um, what morally has to be put aside and be paid for. But to be justified or to be righteous means to be in a right standing that, that you don't have to explain yourself Nobody can judge you, not because you don't deserve it, but because one has been judged in your place, and you're, you're free from that. But, so the dynamic of the promise, but notice how in both cases it looks, the word through faith. How does that righteousness come? It comes through faith. That's the dynamic. What's the promise? In, what's the faith in? It's in the promise of Jesus the Christ. And who does it go to? All who believe. Do you see how faith and belief, you see how it sandwiches the promise? So you've got dynamic, promise, dynamic. That's the gospel. Through faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial atonement for you to all who believe. Now, the question that um, a lot of people ask, like if you, if you, like one of your kids goes off to university, oftentimes they take a religion class, which I'll just leave that where it is. Um, one of the things that people will, will say about this oftentimes is they'll say, listen, Paul just made up Christianity. Like this, 
I mean, where did he even get that from? I mean, he just, I mean, Jesus said stuff about the poor and like loving your neighbor and like being a good person and stuff. And then Paul just comes along and he takes this really practical, like earthy, gritty faith and he turns it into this like ethereal, metaphysical like thing where you kind of like, you believe and you're okay. And then we turn that into this like American thing where I don't have to love anybody because I believe in Jesus and I'm going to heaven. I'll just go to church. And that what we, if you really want to believe in and follow Jesus, you need to get back to the old mystical sage of Jerusalem who, who teaches that you ought to love your neighbor. Um, now, if, if you're like 18, that might sound brilliant to you, you know, because your youth pastor wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. But that doesn't make it something other than ridiculously false. That doesn't reflect on Derek, by the way, or Nick. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't take away from the fact that it is ridiculously and foolishly false. Because the question you can ask yourself is, where did Paul get this? Where does Paul get off saying this? How does he know this? Is it just sheer revelation that one day it dropped out of heaven and he received it, and it doesn't matter if he agrees with Jesus or not, it must somehow be true because it's already in the Bible? Or can we actually say, no, actually, he and Jesus completely agree, and here's why. And what's the why? And you see, what Paul says is, he tells us where he learned it, and he tells us exactly where he got it. And he got it from what he called the Bible, which is the Old Testament. You see, there's so many Christians—I I can't tell you how many Christians over the years I've heard say, you know, I'm a, yeah, I'm a Christian, and like all that judgment stuff, and like obeying God and all that, you know, I really believe in a more of a New Testament God, like Jesus. And I'm not just really into that like angry Old Testament God thing. Which, I'll, let me just tell you right now, if you believe that sincerely, I totally get that. I, that, those exact words came out of my mouth when I was like 19. And then one of my friends, Tiff, Tiff, Tiffany, was like, um, God doesn't change. And she didn't say it very nicely, but she was right still. And, um, yeah, now she's a literature professor at Wheaton and is still right. Um, the, the, the point is, is that Jesus— you know where Paul got this? You know where he got it from Jesus? He got it from where Jesus, before he was the man Jesus, when he was the eternal word of God, where the second person of the Trinity, who was the eternal word, Paul got it from where he left it. Because the eternal word who inspired the Old Testament left it there for him. So that when he would come in the man Jesus Christ, he would fulfill it fully. And when Paul would look back to figure out what on earth the gospel was, he would see it there where it's laid constantly in every book, in every passage, in every place in the Old Testament. And so you go, where did you get this, Paul? You just lick this up off the ground? You invent a new religion? He goes, no, I got it from page 6 of the Bible through to page 875. That's where I got it. And that's just the way it is. Now you can say you don't believe it. You can say it's wrong. You can say the Bible isn't inspired. But let's—but don't believe the claptrap that somehow the Apostle Paul made it up. Because he says, listen, you know where I got it? He says, I got it. It has been made known into which the law and the prophets testify. Meaning, if we had a court case about this, you could put the law and the prophets on the stand and they would tell you this is how it works. And then to prove it, he says, now listen, because there's some Jewish people in the context he's writing to. He says, now listen, let's, let's ask ourselves the question. So he gets to the end of chapter 3. He says, look, this is how you're made right with God. You're not made right with God by, how, well, by the works you do. You're made right with God by trusting in his promise. 
There's a promise, and then you believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, you're made right with God. That's the good news. That's all there is to it. That's all you will ever do as a Christian, is you will listen to God and decide whether or not you're going to trust Him. That's it. He said, now am I making this up? And then he says, now, if that's the way that we're saved, can anybody brag about who or what they are? Can anybody brag about how good they are or that they were born a Jew or that they're good at this? Or He said, no, boasting's going to be totally out because salvation is a total gift and you shouldn't be bragging about gifts, right? And then he gets to chapter 4, three sentences later, and he says, now, how is he going to argue that this is true? He says this, what then shall we say that— you don't have to say it out loud, but you can. Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter, meaning in the righteousness that is credited by God, that I'm talking about here because of Jesus' death and resurrection. What did Abraham, the very first truster of God, what did he, what did he learn about this? And he says, look, he says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, though not before God. What does the scripture say? Where did he get this from? He got this from, well, it says right there. Here's the footnote. Genesis 15, 6 and Genesis 15, 22. He got it from the Bible. He got it from Genesis. He got it from the first story about God telling a human what salvation was going to be like, right? It says in the Bible there, Abraham, so God promises Abraham something. He says, I'm going to make you into a whole nation of people. You're going to leave your land, you're going to go live somewhere else, and then I'm going to build you up in this nation. And through that nation, I'm going to save the whole world, right? And then right after that, it says this line. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then now he's commenting. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Meaning you don't say, you don't say, oh, that was so nice of you when you get your paycheck, right? Like you deserve that. Right? He said, if, if what you get, you deserve it, it's not a gift by definition, right? He said, however, to the one who does not work, meaning doesn't earn it, but, but that's instead trusts God. So instead of performing for God, he trusts God, who is the kind of person who justifies the wicked— that is, the one who f totally fails at moral performance. His faith, that is, the faith of the person who believes God, is credited as righteousness. Why do we know that? Because that's what it says about what God did with Abraham. And then what's the very next thing he says? David says, what does that mean? He's quoting the Old Testament again. He said, let me tell you just an, another passage. There's hundreds of passages in the Old Testament that teach us this. Let me just quote just any other verse. I'll quote just another verse that teaches this exact same thing in the Old Testament, which David says. So King David in what? Psalm 32, 1 to 2 in the Bible. So he's quoting another Bible passage that teaches this. Where did Paul get it? He got it from Genesis and the Psalms, right? David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of a man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, this is David in the psalm. Blessed are all those whose transgressions are forgiven. You see, this is the negative way to say this positive. So in Genesis 15, it says the positive. God credited righteousness to Abraham. He gave it to Abraham. And here he says, to the person who is in debt to God, God cancels the debt and forgives it. That person is blessed. They're happy. They're in a good place. Blessed is the one, are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You see the argument? Paul didn't make this up. He got it from a very specific place. And he's telling us where he got it from. He's showing his work. He says in chapter 3 that all of the law, meaning the first books of the Bible, and then all of the prophets that come after him, that is the entire Old Testament teaches this. He gets to the next chapter. He says, let me just give you two quick examples. The very beginning and in one of the Psalms. One that says it positively and one that says it negatively. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And once you see that, now go and reread Jesus, and you'll realize that that's exactly what he's teaching. You see, if you go to, the, to Jesus in the narratives of the Gospels with the assumption that they're, he, they're, he's going to fulfill your politics, then you're going to find a wandering sage that affirms your politics no matter what they are. Listen, the, the, the lives of Jesus are narratives, right? Paul writes epistles, that is, letters. The kind of writing is different. They aren't naturally going to sound like each other. If you read a story about a social movement, and then you read a piece of legislation that was passed during that social movement, right? You read a biography on Martin Luther King Jr., right? And then you read the Civil Rights Act of 1967 or whatever it was, or 59, I can't remember now. You're not going to read those and go, oh yeah, of course. But if you're careful, you'll say, oh yeah, that fits in here, and that goes there, and this is this, and then that's why they did that, and then here's, and then this fits right there. I get it now. Does that make sense? Don't let the fact that it's different kinds of writings, the language is slightly different. Most of us would not have picked up on the fact that Genesis 15, 6 and Psalm 31, 1 and 2 say the exact same thing until Paul puts it right there and explains it. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples, when he explained the whole Bible and how it all pointed to him, he said, how foolish you are and how slow you are to believe. Because when somebody puts it together for you like that, you go, oh, of course. But when somebody doesn't put it together like that for you, we tend to be foolish and slow of heart to believe. But yet everywhere in the Bible, this is what we see over and over and over again. And so if you were here months ago, you saw this graphic where I was like, here's, here's the promise and here's the dynamic. God makes a promise that Abraham will be blessed and he will bless all nations through God's work. Abraham doesn't know that ultimately the blessed one would be the Christ of the promise. He just knows this much and he trusts it. The dynamic is still the same. There's a promise, which, uh, let me just, as an aside, the promise is always impossible, right? So Abraham and his wife have been infertile their whole married life for 50 years, and God says, you're going to leave everything behind, you're going to be a wandering nomad, and some, somewhere along the line, you're going to have a child, and then that's gonna be, you're going to become this great, mighty nation. That's impossible. That's pretty normal. When God says, I want you to trust me, here's the promise, I want you to do this, it's going, it always sounds crazy, okay? This is why it always frustrates me when I sit down with secular folks who are considering Christian faith, and they're like, look, I just can't, like, obeying God, and like, the ways you talk about, and like, giving money, and like, constraining my sexuality, and like, you know, like, all these kinds of things that like, Christian, like, I mean, that's just, that's crazy, and I mean, I, I try to be delicate in like, the real situation, but this part of me goes, of course, it's crazy. That's what faith is. God asks you to believe something that is impossible in which you risk everything you're piling up for yourself as idols, which is the other thing you're hoping in. It's always going to sound crazy. If it doesn't sound crazy, it's not a call to faith. Right? So there's the dynamic. The dynamic is faith. The promise is Jesus. Now what that means is that 
Um, if you don't have one of these, there, there should be some in, in the uh, thing that you can pass down. Um, what this means is, is that if you look at any sermon from this whole series, or hopefully any sermon that I'll ever preach, every decision that you ever make, all the, all the Christian decisions you make, how you interpret the Bible, all of that comes down to a very, very clear dynamic. And it can be looked at like this. So this is a—Lisa made this after I made a crude drawing. Um, applying the gospel to everything. How do you believe and apply the gospel in and with everything? Because listen, that's all you're ever going to do if you're a Christian. That you don't believe the gospel and then obey God. All you ever do is believe the gospel. Okay? The good news. What God—and here's the dynamic. One is—the first step is, what, what's going on? Now that can be you're reading the Bible, and it's a Bible passage, and you're trying to figure out how to interpret the Bible passage. It could be a life situation, an emotional decision. You have to make a conflict. It could be anything. What is going on? Be specific. One of the things that you'll find is if you—because here's the thing you need to recognize about this. You need to master this, not become familiar with it. There are some things you have to familiarize yourself with. Yeah, I know. And there are some things that you have to master because you have to do them automatically, right? Right? You have to—if you're going to play basketball, you have to master the rules because you can't be trying to think of them up while you're playing the game, right? There are other things you have to just familiarize yourself with, right? Because you you don't—when you get there, the situation itself will remind you what to do, right? You don't have to master it. This you have to master. It has to happen automatically. Okay? The first is, what's going on? The second is, what do I know about the person of God and the promise that God has made that I can believe? And you need to answer this specifically to this. You don't just write Jesus here. Okay? Now, this is going to take something that in earlier generations was referred to as linear thought. Okay? Where you would take this thought and you'd build upon it with another thought in the same stream of consciousness using something called concentration. (laughs) Okay? Because most people, they won't. They will look at this, they'll write down what's on their mind, and then the first thought that juts into their mind, they'll write here. You can write it up here in the corner and then go deeper than that. Remember, how long does it take for the average American math student to quit on a math problem when they're trying to solve it? Do you remember this from wherever I said it before? 20 seconds. And what's going on with our kids says a lot about all of us. You gotta hang in there. You gotta, okay, what is real? what's going on? And then ask the question, what's really going on? And then say, what's really going on? And then just keep going, just keep running. What's really going on? What's really going on? Until it gets specific. And then, what do I know about the promise and person of God as specifically related to this as possible? What does God say about this? Or what is, what's something I know about God and what God has promised that relates specifically to this? Okay? So you know, so you have in front of you the person and the promise that you have to believe or not believe. Right? You're framing the Word of God. What is the Word of God in this situation? Now, you can hear it mystically. I'm not against that. What I'm saying is, without a prophetic gift, you can still do this, okay? Because you just 
you put it in there. It's, it's revealed. It's, it's out there. And if you don't know, you find a mentor. And you sit down with the mentor. You talk with them. And he'll, he'll help you get clarity. You fill this out, right? And then the question is, the dynamic of salvation. Given the promise and the person of God, what would faith look like if I was to believe God's promise and trust his person? What would it look like? And so the dynamic of salvation is what? It's, and it's repentance and faith, right? Repentance and faith. I'm wrong about this. God, you're right about that. I'm wrong about this. God, you're right about that. Therefore, I'm going to act in relationship with reality. So the dynamic of salvation is at where have I totally misjudged this and I'm wrong and I have to accept that and say I'm wrong and where and what would it look like to actually believe this? If I really believe this, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Now, now, it might just be I'm feeling anxious about something, and I have to trust that God is the provider and protector of me. And no matter what happens, I can trust him to provide and protect for me. And so therefore, I can relax. <laughs> and what you put here is believe God and relax. Right? Go to bed. Don't work more than 55 hours a week. Oh, now it's, now it's not as funny, is it? Right? And then the result of that is salvation and its fruits. Right? So here's a couple examples real quickly. Oh, there's the boxes. There's salvation and its fruits. So one, let's, you're reading the Bible. You're trying to read and study the Bible, okay? So a few weeks ago, we did the book of Ezekiel, right? And there's two places in Ezekiel where God says, listen, I, I can, if you trust me, I can take out your heart of stone and I can give you a heart of flesh. Right? So what's going on? God is saying there are people that will not trust him and therefore they won't change. They won't, they won't be his followers. They won't. And you may very well believe. So you go, okay, wait a second. What do I believe that's related to that? Here's what you believe. You don't really believe you will ever change and you don't really believe those other people in your life will ever change. That's what you really believe. You, you believe in a religion <laughs> or a faith that teaches that God radically transforms people, but what you really believe is that people don't really change. There, you can put a little um, religious window dressing. Christianity might create some nice little coping mechanisms, but it does not fundamentally completely transform people. You're never going to get over what your mom did to you. Not really. You'll, you know, you'll believe Jesus half the time, but you're never going to get over that because people don't get over those things. You're never going to get past that thing that happened to you. You're always just going to be an anxious person. You're never going to be particularly nice. People are just going to have to learn to deal with that. Whatever. And what that passage says is, that's not true. So the promise is the God who changes people and changes lives and acts says, I will supernaturally, so that whatever dynamic you think ought to change people that doesn't, that he says, listen, I'm not saying that works. He's saying, I supernaturally transform people from the inside out. I do spiritual heart transplants. Do you believe it? Or don't you? Now you'd be like, well, I believe in Jesus. Great. Okay, you believe in Jesus, and Jesus is the God who changes people. So let's get specific. That person at work you hate, right? You have no vision of who they could be. You just know you hate them, and you want God to smite them or whatever, right? Or you. You're just like, well, I'm just, you know, I have something of an anger problem. It's just hard. It's, it's, 
It's the sins that you're no longer struggling with. You say you're struggling with them, but you're really snuggling with them. Right, you remember that? Those. That, in that passage, God says, I do change people who trust me for a supernatural heart transplant. So the question then becomes, that's the promise of God. That's what God is like. That's what he does. Now, now, now the question is, will you believe it? And if you believed that, what would that mean? What would you do? How would you act? How would you feel? How would you think? How would you relate in the church to help us live that way if you believed that? What does that mean? Now, I'm not saying that if you don't believe that in that particular situation, you're going to hell because you don't believe in Jesus at all. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, you say you believe in Jesus, right? You say you're a Christian. You say you trust God. Okay, now— that's all we're ever going to do. So now we're going to read this Bible passage, and we're going to trust God. What is God saying now? What would it mean to trust Him? What would you do if you believed change was possible? What would you do? Will you stop talking like it wasn't? You'd stop being passive-aggressive with people, always protecting yourself because they could never react differently. You would actually confront, but yet still love somebody, recognizing that that process really can help them come to repentance and grow, interact, instead of just saying, well, they'll never change, so what I'll do is I'll never confront them because I know they'll always blow up, and then I just won't talk to them. Rather than talk to them, let them blow up, say, that's not okay, but yet I'm still in a relationship with you, and we're going to keep doing this until you realize I'm going to love you, but you're not going to act that way. Whether that's your two-year-old, your 16-year-old, your coworker, your spouse, your—whatever. What would it look like to believe it? And when you read the Bible, this should happen. And if it doesn't happen, there's a couple things to do. One, either you're not reading it spiritually. That is, you're not expecting that to happen. You're not expecting a gospel issue to come up. For God to say, I'm like this. Will you trust me, believe in me, follow me, and act like you believe this? You're reading it too academically. You do that first so that you're asking the right questions. So that you're understanding the passage properly. So that you can get to the question of what does this say about God? What is he saying to me? And what am I going to do? Does that make sense? Here's another example. Small things, right? Should I apologize? Right? Should I apologize to so-and-so? That's just as much a gospel issue as are you going to believe Ezekiel 36? How do you think that through? Well, I believe in Jesus, okay? Let's get more specific about Jesus. What's Jesus like in relationship to why you do or do not want to apologize? Well, I don't want to say I'm wrong. Okay, well, are you wrong? Well, I don't think I'm wrong. Okay, would Jesus say he was wrong if he didn't think he was wrong? Well, no. Okay, so maybe you can't say I'm wrong about that. But did you behave like Jesus? Did you only seek to persuade or did you try to pressure and empower and like— Exert yourself on Because those are different things You cannot say you're wrong about the content But you can admit that you're totally wrong About how you talk, talked or treated that person Right? Because did Jesus You were like, well Jesus never had a fight So did he ever have to apologize? Well no But if he had to apologize for you What would he say? 
He probably wouldn't lie and flatter. He probably used to joke, used to joke in the South, I had a friend from Arkansas, he'd say, this is what you say when you're talking to your wife. Baby, you're right. You're so right, and I'm wrong, and you're so right, and you're so pretty, and I'm so ugly, but and you're so right, you know? It, you know, it's, it's, there, there's this flattery dynamic that's just as unhealthy as the fight. And you see, there are people that think that they're doing what God wants them to do when they apologize because they just blew up, and now instead of being powerfully pressuring, they come in and they use flattery to pressure the person to say it's okay. So there they use their power, here they use implicit guilt. And they're like, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. They're not, and they're not sorry. And everybody knows they're lying. Right? Are you capable of saying, okay, Jesus would tell the truth, he would admit the manner was wrong, and he would not demand something from them in order for him to do the right thing? Right? So, so you go, and you had a huge fight, and she was wrong to her, I was wrong, whatever. And you go, listen, I don't know what to decide about the thing we just fought about. I know you're not persuaded that I'm right, and I'm not persuaded that you're right, and I don't know what to do about that. But I tried to get you to do it by pressuring you and treating you a way I should never treat you, and I'm really sorry about that. I was totally wrong to do that. I was worshiping, getting things my way, my life going easier, and me being able to control you rather than worshiping Jesus who wants me to work with you and lead you and for us to be on the same team. And I'm sorry I did that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to never do that again. Um, and I'm really sorry. And then not say at the end of that, okay, now it's your turn. <laughs> you just, because if you, if, you, if you won't apologize unless they do, that's not the gospel, right? Je- Jesus never said, if anybody ever forgives you, you should forgive them back, right? He just says flat, you forgive everybody who sins against you. Does not matter what they do. He never says, and then, they- and then they'll accept your apology, and then they'll break down and forgive you. That doesn't always happen. That doesn't even happen most of the time, right? Have you lived in the real world at all? Right? It doesn't happen that way, but you still do it. Unless you're a very small person who believes in another God who's going to save you, which is your own cunning, your own power, your own strength, your own ability to control. If you want to worship the God of your ability to control, or how you use words and how you can cut things around, or how you can always beat your wife or your husband or your loved one or your roommate at an argument, just because you're better at arguing in real time, because you think really well on your feet. That's not being right. That's being mean. If you're really good at thinking on your feet, then when your spouse says something that's ridiculous, you go, okay, I think you're arguing this. Tell me if I'm right. And then you lay out the best possible argument that destroys yours for them. Is that what you're saying? Okay, well then you're right. Prove yourself wrong if you're so good at thinking on your feet. Otherwise, you're using a gift of God to curse somebody else. That's probably not what it was intended for. You're probably not using it in faith. Right? And so you get just the gospel. Jesus is humble. He's gracious. He cares about the truth. He, and he warns us that pride is our greatest enemy. And when you will not apologize, you, that's probably lurking. And you do not want to give that anywhere to grow. Right? Now, Another way to move further with this is by, by 
doing the negative side too. Like some people only want to think positive. I don't, I don't know how you get through life. Doug, awesome. High five. You're going to win. Um, but for those of us who like differentiation really clarifies things, you know, one of, the, one of the differentiations in the Bible is there's God and then there's the other God called the idol. That's ma- God is making a promise. The idol's making a promise. And you have to choose which one you're going to trust. There's gospel and anti-gospel, right? And so one of the things that you can see on here is you see, here's the person in promise, but right here, this is not applying the gospel. What is the counter promise? There's a counter promise. You, right? You just had this huge fight. Like, you can either put your trust in God and you can apologize and you can see what happens. And you can trust God to move your spouse or your friend or your girlfriend or whatever. Your, whatever. You say you're wrong and then you see what happens. Or you can say, I can manage this. I'm going to use my loquaciousness, my power, my abilities, my blah, blah, blah. I'm going to put my trust in. You see, when you fill out that box, things start getting a lot clearer. This is who God is, and this is what God says. But I've got an alternative. The alternative is I can trust in this. What is it? One of your abilities, some kind of hope, some dynamic that you can use. It's usually going to be related to what? Power, comfort, approval, those things, right? And then, if I can either choose to trust God in His promise, or I can trust this, if I believe in this idol, how will I act? But if I believe in God's promise, how will I act? And you'll see a very stark difference between those two. And that will really clarify your decision, though it won't totally make it for you. Here's what I mean by that. Because some people might be, okay, Nick, so like for apologizing or like doing the right thing, you can use that and it gives you an answer. It spits out an answer. Or like when you do a Bible passage, you run it through that, it spits out an answer. But like there's, life is more complicated like that. Like, should I quit my job and get another one? Should I marry this person or not? Should I put my kid in this school or not? Like, like that's most of the harder decisions in life. Well, maybe. But where, what decisions do we fail in the most commonly? It's actually the easiest ones. Why? Because the easiest ones are actually the morally the hardest. It's the either or we have the problem with. It's actually not the moral clarity. And one of the reasons our lives are so ambiguous is because we don't think clearly enough about the decisions that make themselves. And so we think they're ambiguous decisions. But they're not. If you think them clear, they— the solution, what faith looks like and what anti-faith look like, presents itself pretty clearly. But when you look at the ones that are really difficult, if you know something about finding the will or the wills of God for your life, you still can crank it out and it still clarifies quite a lot. So, for example, one of the ways that we find God's will for our life or wills—I say wills because—and here's why. Because— if you're—if you want to be a physical therapist or a commando base jumper, like, SEAL person, right? Not like a person that's half SEAL, but like a, the military thing. <laughs> it's hard to land, I hear, if you've got flippers. Okay, so, um, so you're trying to figure out what to do, and what happens is because you're, you're so focused on that decision, you don't realize that's not the locus of God's will for your life. God's will for your life is that you would serve Him out of faith and love and thankfulness in all of the duties of your present moment. So if you're like, oh, it's God's will for my life to— No, God's will for your life—do the dishes and not wait for your roommate to do them, right? Or your spouse. 
God's will for your life is for you to listen to your kid when they're talking to you. So you can meaningfully interact with them, right? It's your duty, right? That's, and the bigger decision, yes, you've got to make that. But don't confuse that with God's will for your life. God has many wills for your life. They are mostly to trust him, and you are going to have to decide what to do in that one. Now, when you're deciding what to do in that one, when you put these together, usually you can get down to a pretty close idea of what to do. So one is, what does Scripture forbid and enjoin? If Scripture says it's wrong, it's not God's will for your life. Right? So if you're thinking, I'm thinking, I'm tall and thin, I'll be an exotic dancer. Well, see, if you do this one carefully, you can eliminate that from God's will. You can know, oh, that's probably not, I should think of something else that tall, thin people could do, right? The second is, now this is important, as you grow in Christ, what is in your heart and conscience to do? I actually think it's too open to interpretation to say what's in your heart to do. Because if the movie Tangled has taught us nothing else, it's that you can have a crappy dream, right? I mean, it's just not true. I mean, Disney corrected its own problem, which I love about them, right? There's all these movies like, what's your dream? Do your dream. And then there's one where they go, well, you better have an okay dream at least, right? Because you're, you're, what's in your heart to do could be just to sin, right? Hence, back to number one, right? What's in my heart to do is to get free of this marriage. Well, let's go look at that one again, right? As you grow in Christ, what is in your heart and conscience? That is, the, the part of you that has a— a moral center. There's probably a passion building in there. There's something that's in your heart to do because it's good, it's true, it's meaningful, it's beautiful. It's not just because you want to escape to it. What's in your heart to do, right? What do godly people advise? If you don't know, that's a discipline you need to think about. Is there a real need and opportunity? Is the door open or does it open with persistence? Because listen, right? You can't just be like, well, is it easy? Like, you know, people talk about the door being opened. Well, there's a lot of times when there's something in your heart and conscience to do, and you go to try to do it, and it doesn't happen the first time. It's not super easy. Now what? Right? Like, when I searched to come here, as, like, I was searching for a job as a pastor in America. I mean, some of you know, this is the only church in all of America that wanted to hire me. Like, it was a 14-month process. I was not in demand. <laughs> Turns out that fast-talking, high-pitched, like, sort of crazy dudes are not what every church is looking for. And so, like, it was 14 months. If I would have been like, well, the door's not open, I mean, I'd be like, I don't know what I'd be right now. I'd be shoveling something. I don't know. Right? A longshore fisherman or something. I don't know what. But, or, so it's, is the door open? Or with reasonable persistence. That it's not a personal idol that I have to become a doctor or I'm not good enough. But like, I want to help children. I want to cure people. I think I want to do this. The first five schools didn't accept me. I'm going to study another year and see if I can get in. That's not wrong. Sometimes you have to persist to open doors. That's okay. But there is a point and there is a motivation that tells us that the door is shut for a reason and that we shouldn't try to beat it down. Eternal sense of God's leading, that's really important. But for some of us, like me, we have like, at any given moment, nine or ten different voices in our heads, and sometimes it's hard to figure out, you know, which is God leading you. And so for you, it might be really clear, but for some of us, it might need to be one of like seven things. Does it fit your personal gifts, limitations, assets, and resources? Listen, your limitations are super important. It's super important. You think, oh, I, can't, I, yeah, I wish God would have given me more to work with. Yeah, well, then you would have been making harder decisions, and you can only do one thing. I, just, I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Van Hooser, and he was w one of the top concert pianists in all of Europe. And 
he was finishing his PhD in theology and had to, he, and you can't do both of those things. You can't be a top classical concert pianist and a, th- a theology professor. That, those are not two things that you can put together. And so he had to pick one. And so he just stopped playing the piano. I mean, not all together, but he just didn't pursue that. Right? You don't, your limitations help you focus and figure out what God wants to do. Otherwise, we'd all think we could be president. Listen, me knowing that I'm not a sharp enough knife in the big enough drawer to be president helps me. Okay? It helps me. Because not only does it narrow how broad my views are, there's a certain extent to which it narrows how high my views are of where I'm going. It's intrinsically good, true, and meaningful. The thing itself. You put that stuff together, and you got a pretty good idea of figuring out what— that becomes a kind of schema for the purposes and promises of God in terms of what you might want to do and how you might want to go forward. Now, that will not get you down to one sentence. But when you start asking this question, what does my idolatry say is God's will for my life? You'll get a list here, too. Well, it's to be healthy and to be successful and to have a lot of money and whatever. And so because I, I want to have power and a lot of money, I want to get this job. And so it's—you'll start lining up what, what the false gods are saying their promises for your life are, and you'll get a sense of what God's real promises are. And it begins—and you start looking at your motivations and what the dynamic of trusting are, and it starts to break things down. I'll, let me give you a quick example. We are talking with a couple this week who's thinking about switching jobs and moving cities, right? How do you decide whether or not to do that when you've got some kids in school and blah, blah, blah? How do you do it, right? Well, there, you can't—there's no Bible verse, right? There's no, like, go thou forth and be a plumber, right? I mean, there's—there just isn't one. And so you—but you've got to make a decision, and you want to make a gospel-centered decision. How do you do that? Well, the first question is, well, why do you want to leave your job? Right? Well, I have a crappy boss. Okay, do you want to leave your crappy boss— because you're afraid he's going to arbitrarily fire you and then it's going to be really hard to provide for your family? Or do you want to leave your crappy boss because you don't want to have to submit to him because he's a jerk? Because you shouldn't have to deal with that. Well, you see, crappy boss, two very different things. Any, any sentence that starts with I shouldn't have to is one you should be suspicious of right away. Right? And so part of it is, is it the right motivations? Why do you want to move to a different place? Is it because, is it because you'll have more impact, right? If I take this job, it'll open my scope of, of action. I can help more people. I can, I can bring something to people's lives that I think will be great. Or is it just you're going to get away from this problem? Well, I mean, I feel like my marriage is stuck, so maybe if we, maybe if we get a new start— Well, how many new starts have you gotten? Is it God's will for you to get a restart, or are you running? But the problem is you're trying to run from the person who's going to move with you. You start going through some of these things, and it be, it'll begin to flesh itself out. And if you have a godly mentor, somebody a little older than you, more seasoned, who can help you clarify your thinking, you can really start to parse these things out and get a pretty strong sense of a group of paths that are going in a direction of faith and a group of paths that aren't. And then you just have to make a call. You need to pick one of the ones that are in the direction of faith. And you need to trust God that if your blessedness and righteousness was dependent on picking which of those was right, he would narrow it down for you. Apparently, I would have picked the wrong church. So I got one option. 
come on, you can't blame me. It's Wisconsin. I was in Florida. But for others of us, there's four or five, there's four or five or, or a number of different options. And you've got to trust God that if they're all gospel options, that would be a right thing for the right reason, that fulfills what the will of God will look like for a wife, that if you, then you, you just do what's in your heart and conscience to do. And you, you trust that if your righteousness and your blessedness depended on picking the right one, God would have narrowed it down for you. But instead, he has left it open because what you really need is faith. You need to practice trusting him. And it might go terribly. And if it does, it's probably because you needed that. And you need to exercise faith and find out what the next gospel option is. But what I want you to see is on every page, in every situation, in every Bible story, in every psalm, in every word, every oracle from every prophet, in everything God has ever done, it's always been to work out this promise. That he's God, that he's making a promise to us, and that through us, he's fulfilling his promise to others. That we're in a long line of his work of redemption in the world. He's calling us to be among his people. And the dynamic of being one of his people is hearing his promise, understanding his promise, and trusting his promise, and living his promise out. And within that dynamic is blessedness, freedom, and salvation from all that we should fear. And blessedness in all the things we should hope for, ultimately. And that in this dynamic of trusting him is the relationship with God that lasts forever, which is at the heart of what we were made to be and do. Every page of the Bible teaches this. And every, everything we do as Christians is just doing this. Most generally, in the fulfillment of the promise, Jesus. The first time you fill this page out, it's, God gave us Jesus. Will I trust him? And then every day of your life, you get more, you get more specific than that. Because of God, because he's shown himself to us in Christ, because of this thing that's happening, what is the promise? What does the person look like? What does trusting him look like? What does the counter promise look like? And what would it look like to trust him and act like I do so that I can enjoy salvation and its fruits? Does that make sense? Yes, it's difficult. And you have to master it. You can't just familiarize yourself with it. But when that dynamic becomes what your heart just does, this is happening to me. Who is God? What's his promise? What does faith look like? How do I trust him in this? Boom, it's this. I can act. It happens as fast as somebody in a sport. Boom, 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 boom. You just do it. And it, it transforms your courage, your sense of freedom, your sense of joy, who you are, what you are, your character, what you're capable of, it changes everything. Because Jesus is Lord, King, and God. His promise animates you, and you respond immediately to it. And you do it by faith until forever you'll do it by sight. Let's pray. Father, um, we, we lift up this time to you, and we pray that you would press in on us everything that we should take from it. Holy Spirit, teach us and lead us and um, work in us and teach us to trust you and to understand you. Help us to think clearly about you. 
and help us to find mentors and be involved in classes and be in studies and things that will help us think more accurately about who you are so that this process can become more and more accurate because we know who it is we're walking with. We know who it is. We know your promises because we know the scriptures and we know Jesus. And so we can do this. And so it affects us and so we react right. Please, please help us to be your people. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and work in us, change us, illuminate our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.